Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. On our show today, we're going to be joined by Dr. Robert Berenson. This is a two-part episode. On today's show, Dr. Berenson is going to be discussing with us how the U.S. medical system is structured and some of the advantages and disadvantages of that system. Next week, we'll bring him back and we'll discuss what we can do about it, how we can change the incentive structures in our system to provide patients better health care, better quality at lower costs. Dr. Berenson is an extraordinary expert in this area, somebody who can see the forests as well as the trees. He's an expert in health care policy, serving as an institute fellow at the Urban Institute. He's an experienced internist, having practiced medicine, and he's also served in senior positions in two administrations. And he was the successful manager and uh, organizer of a preferred provider organization, an organization putting people together to provide medical care. Dr. Berenson, thank you so much for being on the program today. You seem to be in a, a uniquely qualified position to explain to people what I think is one of the most difficult problems with understanding our healthcare system, which is what kind of system do we have? How is it structured? Well, it's a crazy quilt system. Um, there, it's easier to describe in other countries. You either have a government-run system where all of the uh, hospitals and doctors are, in a sense, government employees, or you have what is called social insurance, where the government is an insurer, but uh, all of the deliverers are are in the private sector. We have a mixture of social insurance, which is Medicare. It's a, it's a government program, but uh, the doctors and hospitals and the other uh, professionals are clearly independent and, and not part of the system. But we have Medicaid uh, for low-income people, which is a mixture of federal and state, and then the, sort of the major uh, way in which uh, people get insurance uh, who don't fall into those two categories is through private insurance. Um, so we have uh, more so than almost any other country a mixture of public-private. Um, but then if you're in the VA system, that's like a government-run system with with facilities that are part of the government. So I guess if I had to characterize it, I would say we've got a little bit of everything, and for any given individual, they may be in a different part of the system. So and families can be split also into different parts of the system. So this is the structure for how we pay for it. I guess we could also include the self-pay and the no-pay categories because those are 
I guess significant. There's self-pay. There's no pay. There's also large, you know, the majority of employed people actually don't have private insurance. Their employers are actually providing uh, the care directly. They're paying for it. It's called self-insurance. So uh, that's how we pay. I, I guess I should make another point about how we're structured, uh, which is that uh, uh, increasingly we are seeing hospitals merging into big hospital systems, um, which have advantages and disadvantages. And yet physicians still, for the most part, are in small, solo and small practices, although they are also beginning to get themselves consolidated into larger practices, and increasingly they're getting employed by hospitals. So we even have variation and diversity of, of where the professionals and facilities, how they're organized. It's really quite the jumble when you think about the the variation on the supply side. So you, you do have those large hospitals, small hospitals. In my specialty of dermatology, I think most of us are still solo practitioners, although there are some groups and some yeah. dermatologists who are part of integrated um, uh, groups of doctors that cover all specialties and primary care. Oh, that's right. And I think the trend is going to be for various reasons to begin to see the uh, – the elimination or the demise of small practices. Uh, for one thing, the younger generation of uh, medical graduates are much more interested in predictable lifestyle. They don't want to be entrepreneurial. They'd rather do shift work. And so many uh, young graduates, medical, medical and other, are looking to be employed. And so that means uh, it's more likely that they'll be employed in hospitals or in large group practices. And I think over, over a generation, I think, we'll see a gradual uh, but persistent reduction of the family physician on the corner, the dermatologist in a solo practice. Um, I think uh, the days are somewhat numbered, but I think those who are in it will figure out a way to con complete their careers in that form of practice. And I imagine there's um, – we, we're just probably scratching the surface of the different providers. Uh, and there's home health providers, and then there's um, hospice and pharmacies. And, oh, absolutely. So the so system is not very well integrated. I, um, um, I'm on the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, and I do want to make the point that I, I'm not speaking for them, but – uh, we have been looking in particular recently at uh, the home health industry and at the hospice industry. And in both cases, you've got the rise of for-profit entities that uh, there's nothing against for-profit per se, but there, it seems to be causing some change in what the purpose of those uh, kinds of programs are with, with attendant increased costs, but with costs that vary dramatically across the country. That's another part of our health system. It's a very large country, and we can you can see spending per capita that varies as much as two or three times, uh, depending on where you happen to live. And while some of it is explained by different levels of health, uh, you know, sick people need more health care, uh, a lot of it is not explained by that, and it just seems to be the practice style or the income expectations that different uh, 
professionals in different parts of the country have. So that's an added uh, part of the complexity. It makes making national policy pretty difficult because we have such a heterogeneous uh, uh, delivery system. Uh, so our- there are some cities in which... Uh, uh, virtually all physicians are simply hospital employees, and then in other parts of the country, you have virtually no physicians or hospital employees. So, um, uh, another example, um, I've been collecting this kind of information. We have in some parts of the country, like Miami, uh, some physicians may make as little as 60 or 70 percent as much as Medicare pays, and in some physicians, like Medicare. Is, is barely paying uh, adequately. And yet in other parts of the country, physicians who have organized themselves in a certain way get as much as 700 or 800 percent of Medicare. So a physician for doing the very same work might get paid a thousand percent difference based on where they happen to be living. It's uh, let, me, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. System. Let me make sure I understand that point before we go on that yeah. A doctor in one area, say say it's an an office visit fee. If if Medicare were paying hundred dollars for an office visit fee, um, some doctors you, you said Miami might be getting seventy dollars for an office visit right. from private insurer. They might right. be getting a thousand seven hundred dollars for an office visit. Yeah, not from probably a, not for the office visit, but for a surgery. It may be that much. They might be getting uh, $200 for their office visit or $300 for their office visit. The, the variation is really marked for um, procedures or for imaging So med- Medicare uh, where would... there can be a variation of 10 times based on where somebody is living. Yeah. Presumably Medicare's rates are, are, are the same across those different locations, but it's just... Yeah, like the a... only variation in the Medicare rates is there are, there are adjustments for... Uh, your cost of doing business mm-hmm. is sort of the fact mm-hmm. that a doctor in a rural area, their their input costs for labor and for utilities, et cetera, is a little bit less, not a lot less, but a little bit less. So there are some variations, and uh, but for the most part, that's one of the actual good things that Medicare does. It, it's able to set fairly rational payment rates. The reason these other variations occur is because they are subject to negotiations between doctors and insurance companies. And in some situations, the insurance company has the upper hand and will demand very low rates to keep their premiums low. And in other places, the doctors have the upper hand and basically can sky's the limit. The the insurer won't be able to provide a delivery network without those doctors. There's no alternative doctors in the geographic area, so those doctors basically can name their price. And so we have what economists would call market failure in that uh, you know, we don't have uh, sort of competitive conditions with competing doctors and competing insurance companies. We often have uh, either domination by insurance companies or domination by hospitals or physicians. And, and that's an issue that has not gotten much attention uh, but needs to. All right. Before we move on, I just want to sum up what we said about the structure of the U.S. healthcare care system. One of our previous guests, 
likened it to some somebody taking care of their health. Was, it's like somebody trying to build a car by buying all the pieces individually from different uh, manufacturers, put them together, and then get on the highway and drive 60 miles an hour. And I would add to that um, that somebody else, a third party, is paying the cost of all those different parts for the person who's buying them. Yeah, and I think that's all right, but I guess I would make the point point that some of that has has come from patients' own desires to uh, really go to special to a specialized expert for for any problem that they have, rather than in, uh, sort of assume that a generalist physician is your sort of uh, basic. Uh, access to to delivery and this varies geographically in most other countries there's a much uh, stronger base in primary care physicians by which i mean general internists pediatricians family physicians and and patients are oriented to to that physician um, before they go on to specialists uh, u.s starting about 30 40 years ago really became uh, specialty-oriented, and, and patients uh, spurred that on, uh, wanting to see the expert in, for any given problem. And that's certainly it's a natural impulse, but we now have a population of patients, many of whom have five or six or ten or twelve chronic problems. It's sort of the unintended consequence of the success of medicine and healthcare is that people live longer with multiple chronic conditions. And now when you see 10 or 12 different physicians, and some patients do see that many uh, routinely in a year, you have great uh, potential for things breaking down. For, for I mean, in that analogy, for, um, you know, your car doesn't run because you're your own general condo. I mean, you're your own mechanic. Uh, nobody sort of coordinating all of that and so there are some policy attempts and including in the health reform legislation that passed last year to try to uh, provide a much stronger role for care coordination uh, for for people who who have all those um, chronic conditions deserve and can get expertise from those specialists but uh, but the need for somebody to be coordinating all of that uh, is is what's now being recognized. So I guess that leads us to the advantages and disadvantages of the current system. So the coordination of care is clearly weak, and, boy, the fragmentation of medical records is something we've talked probably too much about on this show um, is, is a real issue. Um, but on the other hand, people get to see a specialist if they want, and presumably there's there's some advantage to that. So, so do you force- yeah, no, that's exactly right. I, I uh, last year uh, with a colleague actually tried to uh, uh, do the research or look at look at the research as to whether the U.S. does have have the highest quality care system in the country, which is often asserted. I mean, in the world. I don't mean in the country, in the world. And what it comes down to is, in some areas we're at or near the top, and in other areas we are. Are, are bad. I, I, if I had to, to generalize, I'd say at things that sometimes get labeled as rescue care, um, a serious acute uh, injury or illness uh, where we're actually trying to 
rescue the patient from a potential death, the U.S. is probably as good as anywhere, with obvious exceptions for people who don't have insurance. But, but for most people, uh, care, trauma care, care in intensive care units, uh, uh, specialized surgery is really a, amongst the best in the world. It's in the prevention, in primary care, in coordinating care, in, um, in those areas, in, in attention to public health, uh, and, and, and promoting a healthy population where we seem to uh, lag significantly across the rest of the world. So um, it's not a single uh, yes or no in terms of does the U.S. have the best health care system. It really does vary. I think you hit on a critical point. So if you look at, you know, how does our medical care system do and you incorporate things like infant mortality that may be related to how many premature births that we have and we have um, do, that are maybe due to poverty or drug abuse, uh, yep. and then it, it makes our health care system look bad. And arguably, if you count poverty and, and, and drug abuse as part of health care, then it is bad. Um, but on the other hand, if you did have a premature infant, then there's probably not a lot of other countries you'd want to go and get care at for that infant. Um, yes, yeah, so again, so assuming you've got health insurance, uh, that's probably right. Now, but I, I would qualify that. I mean, people often talk about it, the sort of life expectancy and the infant mortality rates where the U.S. doesn't do very well. So they've, but clearly, as you you've suggested, that there's many other factors, social factors, uh, that are really not. You can't pin that on the healthcare system. So to try to um, adjust for these uh, sort of confounding variables, you know, the fact that uh, we have more uh, poverty than many countries or, or, or greater use of uh, guns or, or deaths from, uh, well, death from guns, drugs, et cetera, which are not attributable to the healthcare system, people have looked at uh, mortality rates for people at the age of 60 where they've survived their uh, infancy and where they've pretty much uh, social factors are much less. And at least at the age of 65, virtually all Americans do have health insurance. Um, and even there, the U.S. statistics are not particularly good. Uh, we, we lag in life expectancy for people at the age of, of 60. Um, I guess you still have to figure so, in our obesity and, uh, well, yeah, lifestyle and, and heart disease and obesity can play a role there. Um, so it's impossible to get a statistic that is pure. This is, uh, you know, this is what the health system's contribution is and to compare. But we have a long way to go. Um, it, we're clearly not achieving the, the, the greatest potential, and we know that because uh, there's a lot of variation across our own country. There are some places that do get higher statistics as well as a sense of higher well-being in the patient population at, at a lower cost. Um, and so that brings up this, the other point about health performance. On quality, we have our strong points and our weak points, but on cost, we just have weak points. We are by far the most expensive um, country in terms of health care spending on any statistic that you look at. 
whether it's per capita spending, uh, percentage of the gross domestic product, we simply do not get our money's worth <clears throat> in, in value for all of the spending, which is now coming close to uh, 20% of our entire economy is now uh, attributable to health care. does create a lot of jobs, um, but uh, it's a pretty inefficient way of dealing with, with unemployment. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. Our guest today is Dr. Robert Berenson, Institute Fellow at the Urban Institute. He's an expert on healthcare policy, particularly Medicare, and he's experienced himself in practicing medicine. Um, Dr. Berenson, I get the sense that politically one of the problems we'll have moving forward is that people look at the strengths of our system and are loath to give them up uh, in order to try to address the weaknesses. Can we, can we work on those weaknesses um, while keeping our current system, or do we have to start all over again and, and, and build from square one, which is probably a very scary proposition to the people who are well insured today, who feel they're seeing great specialists, who think that if something goes wrong, their operation is, you know, in our current environment, it's the best situation for them to be in. Yeah, well, I, whatever my, uh, whichever approach I would favor, the reality is that when healthcare makes up 20% or nearly 20% of the economy, you can't, from Washington, uh, say, oh, we're going to completely overhaul it. Uh, we're talking about millions of health professionals who have been educated and, and practicing a certain kind of style, and you don't suddenly tell them that tomorrow you're going to have to change all of that. You've got to evolve. Um, this is going to be incremental change. Um, for better or for worse. And I would say that for all of the talk that the health reform legislation um, involved some kind of government takeover of health care, in fact, it was a very tempered, incremental approach to uh, that accepted the reality that people wanted to keep their private insurance and that uh, physicians and hospitals did not want to suddenly have a completely different business model that they were working under. So, uh, again, uh, it, it means it'll, it'll take a while, but I think it's r really pretty clear that we will be adopting an incremental approach to um, reforming our health care system. You just don't dislocate both patients and health professionals uh, with a radical uh, change, and I don't believe anybody has been proposing one. So, well, some people have been proposing them, but that's not what's in in the legislation that yeah. passed. What What are the key changes that? Uh, I mean, you've you've worked at a, a, a PPO, a preferred provider organization. You've been practicing in the trenches. You've you've seen things from the top of the, of the pyramid perspective, working in the administration. What kinds of changes do you think uh, incremental changes do you think are needed? Well, clearly, I think, uh, and this is one which I would go beyond incremental, which is as, as a sort of essential element of any good health care system, you've got to get the population covered so that they can have health insurance. Or, or, and, and that's so the, the legislation will cover more than 30 million people um, so that they have access to care. It just makes no sense for people. Uh, everybody has a right to emergency care. 
uh, and then to say, but you don't aren't going to get any primary and preventive care is just sort of penny wise and and dollar foolish. Uh, we're going to we spend more money because people aren't covered, and it's really um, uh, you know part of a good society. I think just like uh, education is a everybody gets access to public education. I think we as a country are making a commitment that. Uh, virtually everybody gets access to uh, to healthcare. Uh, Bob, uh, let me let me stop of, you right there. Let me let me uh, stop you because I really the, what Bob, we call Bob, the supply side, Dr. Veres, the before, doctors, the hospitals. I, I, I need just I need I need to necessary. stop you because you've said something that I think just okay. is everybody probably would agree on, and I I just wonder if it's a fundamental thing that we have in our head that isn't necessarily true. This idea that everybody needs coverage. Um, you said that everybody is entitled to education, but we don't guarantee everybody the best possible education. No, so, that's right, and we're it, not guaranteeing everybody the best possible health care. Uh, we're not. Okay, the, uh, let me go back the, even farther. The, the minimum benefit package that people will have access to isn't, is, is, uh, doesn't have any frills to it, and... Um, uh, it would be the equivalent of, of access to a public education, not to the best private school in the country. Um, so, so you're saying mean that, that everybody's going to be able to go to the Mayo Clinic or the comparable institution in some communities, but it's sort of uh, basically ex- acceptable coverage, so, I believe. Uh, so we, uh, I'm sorry. So we're, we're going to. I'm going to come back and, and probe this a little deeper in a second, but right now you're saying that we're going to have a multi-tier system where some people get better care and some people get worse. So uh, let's just take oh, the medic- Yeah, I'm going to, I mean, that's what we certainly have now. We have huge gaps. What I think we're moving to is one that that significantly narrows the tiers so that the best is not quantum leaps greater than the poorest. I mean, right now we have people who have no access to care other than... Uh, from an emergency room, yes. uh, and even that can sometimes not happen. So, uh, now everybody will have access at least to, to basic care in, in the community from a, from a physician or from a community health center. Yeah, so, uh, so you're saying we will have tiers. That's uh, what we do in this country. That's, in fact, most of the countries in, in Europe don't have one style of care. They, they have tiers as well, and I think that's inevitable. So, you th- so um, are we saying... That the Medicare population, they're go- they're going to get basic care, and we're not going to guarantee. No, them. I think the Medicare population actually gets excellent care uh, because. Uh, uh, so so no, I'm not saying that. So you're um, saying they're in, and they're we're really talking about the insurance to be able to get care. Um, there are people who live in some communities who who uh, don't get good care because there's so little. Uh, ability to pay for care that uh, good physicians and hospitals don't set up in those communities. I think uh, what we will see is everybody has some level of insurance coverage that uh, there will be uh, a more equitable distribution of of talent across the country, and we will, over a long period of time, narrow the discrepancies that we now have so when- uh, in who gets good care and who, who gets uh, sort of mediocre care. So when you were saying that, you know, society accepts that everybody should be, everybody should be covered, you're, and you're saying, but but I'm not saying everybody deserves really good coverage. 
Um, and, and, but you're saying the Medicare. We can't afford the best for everybody. And in fact, when I said that was that's my view. Uh, clearly, we have a lot of people who do not accept the fact that everybody has a. Uh, should should have access to basic care because there are a lot of people who want to repeal this health uh, insurance legislation and uh, would go back to a situation where uh, 40 or 50 million people simply uh, are lucky if they can get health care. So I, it is something that the Congress has endorsed, uh, but we have a lot of Americans who who don't who don't support that concept, and so I think that is a a basic one, um, but that's what I support is is a basic level of insurance coverage for everybody. Okay, now let, let's let's approve that as fundamental level, just a step deeper. You know, I think everybody in America should be should be able to eat. You know, they should have groceries and access to food, but we don't insure their food, and we do pretty good. Yeah, there may be some hunger, but we're able to. But the price of food is so low that even if somebody is poor in America, they, generally speaking, you, you have access to food. And with aid, it, it doesn't cost us much to provide aid to people. It's nothing like the cost of Medicare or Medicaid. It seems to me that the fact that we have insurance at all is what separates medical care from groceries and creates the high-cost problem that we face. Well, yeah, and uh, but to take it one step further, it's impossible to not have insurance in something as unpredictable as healthcare. Everybody has to eat every day, and uh, you can sort of predict how much that's going to spend to have three meals a day. And some people do get food stamps. Um, in healthcare, a lot of people are healthy, and suddenly they are seriously sick. They can't predict it. It would bankrupt anybody without insurance to suddenly have a, a cancer that could be cured but could be cured for hundreds of thousands of dollars or to be in a car accident. So, yeah, they're different. Um, but we accept, it... as does every Western developed country, the reality that uh, health care, uh, there needs to be insurance in health care. Isn't the fact or that it somebody costs... has to be empowered to just provide it, which is what some of the... Um, Western European countries do. Well, that's that's the question. So isn't the fact that it's insured what makes it cost so much? You know, you'll be bankrupt if you get cancer because it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Isn't the fact that it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars due to the fact that there's a third party paying for it and the consumer themselves has no incentive to control the cost? And of I, care? Don't, I don't agree with that. I mean, we have, there are a lot of examples of other countries that have social insurance. It's... Uh, in fact, now in a place like the Netherlands or Switzerland, uh, people get their care from private insurance companies. Uh, they actually have private insurance. Everybody's insured through them, and their uh, costs are, you know, 60% of ours. So uh, we have some unique factors here that are driving costs. But to your basic point is, does insurance raise costs? Yes. It's called moral hazard. If somebody else is paying the bill, uh, then I'm more likely to use services than if I were paying the bill. Uh, but I think that uh, uh, to do without insurance uh, is a non-starter. Uh, it would be rejected uh, by the public, and um, and every country has a role for insurance. Uh, there is some, well, there's a lot of discussion of whether some reasonable out-of-pocket spending would. Uh, 
which in fact a lot of people already have, is, is they have co-payments, they have deductibles. Uh, whether uh, we could be a little smarter about how that happens, and maybe that would restrain some of the spending. But to the sort of proposition that let's eliminate insurance from health care, um, it just makes, it makes no sense. This is not food. This is health care where expenses are not proportionate across the population. They're concentrated on individuals who get sick or, or, or injured, and, um, and, and there's no mechanism other than insurance for spreading the costs of that. Well, we, we don't – yeah, I mean, the same thing would be true for auto accidents, but then, like you say, there's big deductibles and co-payments that encourage people to drive safely and – not well, to do yeah, the equivalent of smoking or overeating. Because and, most states actually have uh, uh, mandatory requirements to purchase auto insurance, so there aren't free riders um, on the. Uh, and and also a lot of states have moved towards no fault auto insurance, uh, but uh, you know, if we didn't have auto insurance, people would immediately demand it. I, I think the same thing would happen with health care. Um, there have been some attempts to have much higher deductibles that people would pay. Uh, they're called consumer-directed health care with the idea that people would have more control over, over their spending and that that would moderate spending. They've had a little bit of success. It's not a game-changer. Um, and part of the reason is that no matter where you look, whether it's in private insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, a very small percentage of people generate most of the spending. Um, a, a typical uh, sort of statistic is about 5% of people generate half of the spending or 20% of people generate 80% of the spending. So uh, at what point, I mean, any reasonable society is going to put a limit on how much of somebody's assets uh, they have to go through uh, before they get some protection from insurance. And so for that 5% or 20%, they are going to go through any out-of-pocket amount that, that you would want to set up reasonably for what they have to spend before the insurance kicks in. And so it doesn't change the cost drive. I feel very strongly that we're going to change the, uh, direct, you know, the trend in costs if uh, if the providers, if the doctors and nurses and hospitals and and uh, home health agencies uh, are able to be more efficient, I I think there's a role for for uh, consumers having a little bit more to pay, but I don't think that's going to be a game changer. Dr. Berenson has done a nice job pointing out for us some of the strengths and weaknesses of our patchwork, quilt-like healthcare system that we have, the so-called non-system healthcare system. And there are some strengths. You can get some great care, but there are some weaknesses, not the least of which is cost and poor value, that for what we're spending, we should be getting better. Our care is poorly coordinated. It's highly variable. The costs vary tremendously. Uh, in our show next week... We'll have Dr. Berenson back, and we're going to discuss in a little more detail what could be done uh, as far as controlling costs, what's been done in the past that's worked, 
how we might change our incentive structures to make our healthcare system better. I hope you'll join us for that show. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. Until next time, I wish you the very best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.